0: honestly, realistically, the medical community has failed women. There's a huge culture shift now that patients aren't taking it anymore. So now that people can say, oh wait, I'm not actually getting the standard of care. It's those stories, it's those voices, it's it's podcasts and platforms like this, that's going to help change um, and shift this narrative of neglecting women. Welcome to Fem
1: Power Health, Georgie here. Out of all the episodes that I have done on menopause, This is the one that we need to be most proactive about because if we aren't proactive, it is what can create those negative stories we tend to hear about the suffering that women have in menopause. Now, quick clarification here, menopause is not just for those in their 40s and 50s and above, It can happen if you are on medications for endometriosis that can induce menopause. It can be chemotherapy, and it can also be right after you've delivered a baby. So this genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which is a mouthful called GSM, It is essentially defined as a collection of symptoms and signs that are caused by this hypoestrogenic change in our bodies. And what's really important context to understand is a lot of times, you know, we say, hey, we're going to our annual physical, seeing our OBGYN, but a lot of that tends to be pap smears. But do we ever ask our OBGYNs to inspect our vulva? And even if we did, Were they properly trained? Because according to my next guest, Dr. Maria Uloko, who is a urologist and specializes in sexual medicine for all, she will tell you a little bit of the truth on what really goes on with the training. And let's face it, are you inspecting your vulva so that you can inform your healthcare practitioner what might be going on down there? So whether you are a clinician listening or a patient who is looking for answers, Please listen to this entire episode. Dr. Uloko is so wonderful and such a huge advocate for getting the right information out there to us. So, thank you so much for your time. And let's dive right into the episode. So, Dr. Uloko, it is so nice to have you on the FemPower Health podcast. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting you at the Let's Talk Menopause Summit in New York City in March. And it was an exciting time because I had never met Rachel Rubin, who is a colleague of yours, and the two of you work so closely together. And I had interviewed her not that long ago, actually, about orgasm, and and I love her because she is a uh, I don't mess around with health information kind of person. And I noticed on the panel that you are just like that. So of course I had to have you on the FemPower Health podcast because those are just the types of guests I like to have because it's so important for the practitioners that listen as well as the The women who listen to really get the information that's so hard to find. So thank you for making time. Um, You mentioned you're at a urology conference. Um, So you really put in the effort. So an A++ for that. So thank you so much. So before we dive into this really important and often misunderstood topic of genitourinary syndrome of menopause, why don't you tell us about yourself?
0: Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. Um, so my name is Dr. Maria Loco. I am an assistant clinical professor at um, the University of California, San Diego. I am a urologist that's specialized in comprehensive sexual health, which means that I take care of the medical and surgical care for all genders and when it comes to sexuality and sexual health. I'm also the director of the Volvar uh, Sexual Medicine Center at the University of California, San Diego, as well. And so, I am a very passionate advocate for closing the barriers and closing the gaps in research, access, education, um, and treatment and diagnosis for our my patients when it comes to the the different sexes, because there's very it's very clear being able to treat all genders and all sexes, that there is a huge disparity in people's ability to access care, people's ability to get care. Um, and then the research that we're doing as well, I'm also a researcher. So I do a lot of research work. Um, and again, with the goal of increasing access and, and debunking myths, because that's a lot of, uh, sexual medicine when it comes to, especially when it comes to women's health. No,
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny, the, uh, I, I wrote, I was, I'm so glad I wrote this quote down because it's a relevant transition to exactly what you just said. And I think it was Dr. Rubin that stated this at that summit. And she said, urology is the triangle of what genitals do you
0: have? Which do you want? And how do you want them to work? That's a, That's a perfect analogy. Yeah. I am a big believer that, you know, our understanding of the the gender binary and all of these things has actually really been detrimental to uh, our overall care and just kind of thinking about genitals as exactly that what what do you have what do you want and then how can we optimize that um is really been a huge um a huge metric is in terms of how I can deliver care and how I I think about research. The
1: the other piece too, and I think this is an important thing to bring up, and then we can dive into genitourinary syndrome um, of menopause, the role of urologists. So I have to say, I had always thought urologists were for men. And I always wondered, especially as I've been doing the podcast, where do women go? Like, is it just the GYN? And then what happens after that? And it's so not the case. Clearly, even with the work that you and Dr. Rubin are doing, I think you guys are even, which is probably why you're part of the many reasons why you're at this conference is you're on your own going to these conferences to educate urologists on cis female anatomy because of yeah. these challenges. So, So tell us about that dynamic, because I think what's... Really interesting to me is not only is it the lack of research in women's health, but it's even the way training works that impacts the treatment that women get, the diagnosis, et cetera. And I always like to give that kind of a perspective because I know a lot of people come into this podcast just really irritated that they can't get answers. And you know, I think that context, and then and then diving into what genitourinary syndrome is and, and how to navigate that. Is so important. So, talk to us about this whole lack of understanding amongst the urology committee and how that impacts women, women with ger- uh, genitourinary syndrome, and, and many other factors.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's actually a really it, unique thing, and it's actually really. And by unique, it's um, it's a long and storied history, and there's so many factors that go into it. I think the first question I'm going to answer is, you know, the misconception that urologists are just men. It's a misconception that's based on a lot of facts because there are, I mean, yes. as it stands right now, I think the split of um, urologists is like 90 90- three or 94% men, 6% women. Um, there's more training trainees going into the field that are more, uh, that are women. So that that curve, is it's gonna get better. But when we think about what a urologist does, um, they are the surgeons for the genital urinary system. Um, so that means the kidneys, bladders, anything related to urination. And then, and for the most part, male sexual health. But the thing is that there are a lot of, female sexual health conditions that actually directly impact the bladder and people's urination. And it's really fascinating if we kind of just look back at the history of gynecology and just kind of its really storied, kind of murky history, you know, in the context and the social and historical context of how that field was developed. It was developed oftentimes with the principles that, you know, Women didn't deserve quality of life, right? It was more so birthing and how can we get babies out so that we can then increase our line and hopefully it's a male baby and you know that whole that whole storied history. And so because of that, that oftentimes vulvar sexual health has actually fallen out of the wayside. Um, OB/GYN and gynecology, the fields respectively, have not done really great jobs in terms of owning women's sexual health. And so that's it's it's actually a unique thing of what Dr. Rubin and I are trying to do and also many other urologists are also trying to do is increase the participation of other urologists and train and teach and educate about vulvar sexual health and just sexual health in general because it's actually a really, really poorly taught really poorly executed uh, means by the medical community, if we are just being really frank and honest. And that directly relates to patients having really challenging times getting care and access to care. I mean, there are so many statistics just to get common diagnoses and get common treatment. And there is so much misunderstanding that, you know, the vulva and, and women's sexual health is just gynecology. But when in actuality, a lot of the advances in sexual health and all of our sexual health has actually been neurologists. So um, Dr. Helen O'Connell was the first person to ever fully define the 3D structure of the clitoris um, using MRI, and that was back in 2005, I believe. And me and my colleagues, uh, Paige Isabe and Dr. Blair Peters, were the first to actually define how many nerves are in the, um, or axons are within the human clitoris. So these are things that are happening by urologists. And, and I think our overall goal is that we, we combine with gynecologists and internal medicine and dermatologists, because these are in professions that um, people are going to, to get sexual health care. And so we're trying to come at this from a collaborative standpoint, where we're educating the masses, teaching, getting people involved, getting people into research and you know i mean honestly realistically the medical community has failed women um historically and you know i think there's a huge culture shift now that patients aren't taking it anymore there are things like podcasts there are things like social media it's actually been a really great thing a talking point for social media so now that people can say oh wait i'm not actually getting the standard of care or the standard of care isn't good we could be doing better and it's 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 those stories, it's those voices, it's it's podcasts and platforms like this that's going to help change um, and shift this narrative of neglecting women and the medical gas gaslighting of very common very common conditions that we just as a medical community have not actually prioritized. Absolutely. Well, thank you for speaking the truth. And honestly,
1: having clinicians question the way healthcare works is it brings credibility to the challenge. So now let's talk about genitourinary syndrome. So I'd love to define what it is. And and we'll talk about lots of solutions, et cetera. But again, I think it's important to understand it, but then figure out how women navigate through it, given the reality of our healthcare situation. And I also want to make sure because I would assume right now we're focusing on cis female. And if there's anything you want to add nuance-wise that is relevant, please share, because that is not my area of expertise. But yes, please define.
0: So genital urinary syndrome of menopause, I think the really, or GSM is what it's called, is a very common thing. And it's, it's, it's due to the loss of hormones. So I tell people that if you do not have healthy hormones, you cannot have a healthy vulva. If you do not have a healthy vulva, you can then not have a healthy bladder. And that statement kind of sums up what GSM is. And so it is when menopause happened, essentially you your body stops producing kind of the big hormones, um, estrogen, uh, progesterone, and then Most of your testosterone production is also gone, but you do still produce a small amount. I'm going to use the worst analogy ever. I'm going to use, I'm so sorry, I apologize, but this is the one that makes the most sense. No problem. Your vulva is a garden, but it actually makes sense. So um, without hormones, you cannot then water the garden, right? And so without hormones, you cannot then keep your vulva healthy. Um. And then what happens is that there are actual physical changes to the vulva that then re- result in symptomatic, in, in symptoms. So physical changes are literally the vulva starts to close shut. Um, and these oftentimes are really silent changes. And the reason that they're silent is because, one, most of them, the when they begin happening, they're asymptomatic, but also a lot of people aren't looking. So if you were to look, you would notice these changes, but they people don't notice it until they start having the symptoms. And so the, the vulva literally... Sh- shuts down the skin of the vulva, becomes red, raw, and inflamed, which then translates to the symptoms of urinary urgency, frequency, um, frequent UTIs, frequent yeast infections, pain with sex, um, decreased lubrication, decreased vaginal infections. So those are the big things associated with GSM. And that's why I use the garden analogy because (laughs) it makes sense. If you do not water your garden, your garden cannot thrive. And then all of this the all of the other things start to happen right understanding
1: these symptoms this is this is really about there are ways to prevent some of these things that can happen due to age and it's not this is not about oh our life is over menopause is the worst because I, I can I just say this I I am so happy people are talking about menopause I sometimes feel like the tone is still like oh my god this totally sucks and it's Driving me a little bit crazy and I'm not at all minimizing the challenge. I mean, I actually this is funny. So I thought I was in menopause. I thought I was postmenopausal. And uh uh-huh. five months in, I go to Sedona and day two after I went to the birthing cave. I know this sounds woo-woo, but it's actually just kind of funny the timing. <laughs> so the the after I finished my hike to the birthing cave, I come home and shoop, it comes back. <laughs> I'm like just like that like are you kidding? so but nonetheless <laughs> tell me your thoughts since you you know have the experience in working with so many patients and our medical doctor, how should we really i mean is this scary? is this just a natural part of life like what is this whole like oh let's let's get in this corral of this sucks <laughs> just, I'm like yeah, positive. Yeah, yeah there are solutions
0: here <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's actually so fascinating I don't think I would have thought about menopause until I started being a menopause provider. And I realized, yeah, like it's so interesting because now that I know that there are solutions, I'm like aging, I'm, I'm fine. I'm like excited to get to 70, right? Like I don't think once you hit a certain age, your life is over. You know, one of the things is that humans didn't used to live as long as they did. And now that we're living longer, how can we then support their quality of life? big believer in quality of life and i think with appropriate menopause management and care we can maintain people's quality of life like one of the biggest complaints i always get is i just don't feel like myself people just want to feel like themselves again and the easiest thing and the way to get to that is with hormone i mean with with hormones, I've, I'm a big believer in hormone replacement therapy. I, I know there's just people up on both sides, but I really do think it's a safe and effective way. And, and as a urologist, it's also really interesting because we, I get to be at this unique standpoint where I literally get to see the differences in care <laughs> between sexes. So when men go through manopause, um, they also have low hormones, and they, and you know, you can't watch a sporting game without hearing about low T, da 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 da, all the all the symptoms of low T and like it's it's actually celebrated. We celebrate that they get their quality of life back. I love being able to support my uh, male patients through their their transitioning. And I think it's just wild (laughs) that, you know, there's such conversation and such should they, should should women be allowed to age gracefully and and keep their quality of life. Like why are we having this discussion? Why aren't we doing more conversations about how can we make sure that we are centering their quality of life and let's why aren't we doing clinical trials why are we still having conversations about a like a really poorly analyzed and interpreted study about hormones we're still talking about are they safe i'm like in urology we are like our patients deserve a quality of life we care so much about their quality of life we're like oh well testosterone and, and men with heart attacks that could potentially be dangerous we're like well but they also need it so let's do a clinical trial and see if it's safe that would never get done in the world of women's health and, I, and i'm realizing this and i get to specifically see it because I, i'm standing at this precipice of being able to treat everyone and i get to see the indirect how there's such a difference and with that i tell people you do not have to suffer through menopause there are options, there are treatments, you can still live a great life. Like I will be doing this until forever, you know, because I can, because I know that there are options and I am privy to that information because, you know, I I get to do the research, I get to do those things. But that's why I like, I'm screaming out at patients and like telling people, tell your girlfriends, tell your mom, tell your sister, tell anyone that you know that you do not have to suffer through this. Like, there's this really cultural norm that women just suffer or and, or they're difficult or they're this. And it's like, no, we as a medical community are doing a bad job of providing good care. And then two, there's a lot of fear mongering that is happening, which is also then preventing people from getting the right care. Um, and then three, this is all easy things that we can be doing. It just has to take an individualized approach.
1: Let's talk about, so there, there's two things. One is- how to be proactive but to discussing these hormone therapies maybe you could just expand on that.
0: Yeah yeah so the WHI study it was a, a study to actually test this the safety of HRT because HRT became really all the rage in the 60s 70s from the European market. Um, they were doing it over Europe and so we, we brought it over to the United States in the 60s and 70s So a lot of people were actually getting through menopause with um, with support. But then the question was, was it safe? We knew it was effective, but was it safe? And that was one of the the things that that study was meant to do was to test the efficacy, but then also the safety of it. The hard part is, is that when they enrolled the study or like when they enrolled for the study, they actually had to stop the study early um, because so many, there was a higher incidence of cardiac events than they wanted. And so that little blurb then took off like like wildfire that then translated into hormone replacement therapy is dangerous do not use it and so i think the statistic was 60 to 60-ish percentage of doctors felt comfortable providing hormone replacement therapy prior to the whi study and now it's down to like an abysmal 10 percent. and really the fascinating thing about that study if you actually like actually look at the data because that's the other interesting thing is that no one a lot of doctors will just poo-poo and say hormones are dangerous. And I'm like, look at the study. The study actually showed that the average age of the patients were 75. So that's about almost 30 years past menopause. Like why are are starting a perimenopausal symptoms or menopause? Like if you give 75 year olds anything, they're probably going to have an adverse event. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. So then they did actual analyses of They broke it down into age. Okay, they're like, okay, well, 75 is a little too old. So let's actually break it down into age. And they actually found that um, if you were less than 60 or within 10 years of starting menopause, that's when you saw all of the health benefits. So they actually decreased uh, colon cancer, decreased rates of endometrial cancer, decreased rates of um, fractures, decreased rates of cardiac (laughs) events. So it's actually safe for your heart. It's good for your body. And then also the quality of life factors. Menopause symptoms are detrimental to quality of life, can be detrimental to quality of life. Not everyone has these severe symptoms, but for those that do, I mean, I don't have to tell them twice that it sucks. Um, and so the, the study, it's there. The data is right there that actually shows that hormone replacement therapy is safe and effective and actually beneficial long-term. And yet there's still this weird disconnect in medicine where they're like, it's, it's not safe. I'm like, yeah, but the data doesn't show that. It's again, there's this weird underlying thing that I've noticed when it comes to women's health that we don't look at data and instead go straight to dogma and paternalism of telling women what they should be doing and saying it's too dangerous. You can't have this versus having shared decision making, using data, using logic and and letting people actually make decisions for themselves absolutely
1: now let's put into context those for example that have the certain gene for breast cancer risk so can we talk about that as well and then we can get into which hormones when do you take them and the impact all that stuff so so tell us about those with certain gene for breast cancer risk and and other possible cancers
0: Yeah. And so what we're talking right now is about systemic hormones. Um, And so the treatment for GSM is actually local hormones. And so when when we think about the link between people with increased risk of breast cancer and uh, systemic hormones, that is a question that actually hasn't even been fully answered yet, right? Like there's... We we as of right now the guidelines um, state that those are those are people that shouldn't be getting systemic hormones. In terms of local hormones, those there's been no there's been mo- more evidence showing that it is safe to take local hormones. So that when we say local, we mean vaginal or vulvar hormones. In um, and, and that has to be again a shared decision making between patients of whether or not you want to take systemic hormones, because, you know, it's all about quality of life. Let's say that, yes, you do have an increased risk of breast cancer, and there's no poo-pooing the significant effect of a cancer diagnosis on anyone. Like, there's just no way around it. It's devastating. But there is also, you know, we also have to think about probability and likelihood and all of these things. And thinking about your quality of life. is like, are there there are non-hormonal options that for some people will, will start and try um, if they do have a positive, if they do have a positive family history. But for those that aren't working, you know, there is the options of hormones, but it has to be a really dedicated discussion with them, understanding the risks, understanding their benefits, and then giving them the opportunity to make that decision for themselves, understanding what their quality, like I always ask my patients, what is your goal? Um, because I'm now going to give you your options now that I know your goals. And you have the ability to make that decision for yourself. I'm not going to make any decision for you. You have to, to do that. And I think a lot of women don't get that choice. Um, they, they do not get even the ability to say to ever be given that option. But in terms of just like the general population or the, the general feeling towards people with an higher incidence of breast cancer risk, uh, with a known genetic risk you know we we try to steer away from that those hormones solely because we don't have the data to show what that could what that looks like um and that's where we are we're just not anywhere near that we're still having conversations of nuanced conversations of anyone with any risk they're Hormones are scary. Like that's where we're still at in this general landscape of women's health. It's really frustrating. Now for the absorption,
1: because I remember um, clearly at the conference there was discussion around not the systemic hormone. Because again, um, the conference also was focused on genito urinary syndrome of menopause. But um, for the localized um, hormones, what is the absorption rate? I think there was a, a comparison of taking two birth control pills in a year or something to that effect. Like it's so minimal. So can you talk to us about that?
0: It's so minimal. Yeah. So that's, it's, it's, um, it is, yeah, there have been studies that have been done that actually looked at what the systemic absorption is. Cause you know, we say that it's, although it's local um, that you don't get a lot of systemic absorption, like what if you do, because hormones, this is the, the interesting thing about hormones is that no matter what we like the data shows. How each person's body reacts to hormones is very That's unique, true. and so again, it's a very individualized process. Even when it's systemic versus local, you know, but local tends to have less of the systemic um, things. The so there is that fear of that systemic absorption. Oh my gosh, I put some, I put really low dose estrogen into my vagina. Am I going to get breast cancer? It's like no, <laughs> I'm like no, you. It's the say it's the same equivalent as like you said taking two birth control pills. The other fascinating thing too that doesn't make sense to me as a researcher is, you know, if we actually look at the data of who's getting breast cancer, most of the people getting breast cancer are actually postmenopausal that haven't taken hormones. They're postmenopausal, they have no estrogen on board and yet they're still developing breast cancer. And so I think there is this 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 um there's this misconception that estrogen causes breast cancer. No. And and, and I and I use this in the analogy of prostate cancer. So as a urologist, I know how to treat prostate cancer. And I do, used to do a lot of prostate cancer research. But if we look at prostate cancer, so again, another disease of older people, but younger people can get it, but the average age is usually in their 60s, 70s. Same with breast cancer. Those people are, oftentimes have low testosterone at baseline, um, just again the natural aging process. And yet those are the people that are getting um, prostate cancer. In our in our understanding, in our knowledge, we know that those people are going to get prostate cancer anyways. We just know that the prostate cancer is unfed by testosterone. We're not saying that testosterone causes prostate cancer. It's just something that happens, and we're, we're still working on that on, on the science behind it. But in our heads, we don't think, oh, testosterone causes prostate cancer because then we'd castrate every man, right? And that doesn't that sounds ridiculous but that's actually what we're doing to women we're we're allowing this castration or la- lack of hormones to happen when we, they don't need to happen and we see the suffering happening and in prostate cancer we know that it's not caused by testosterone but we know that if testosterone's on board while you're actively treating it probably isn't going to help the outcome so we actually treat the cancer once the cancer is treated and it's eradicated we actually then put patients back on testosterone. I could never do that with my, my female patients. And yes, there's a little bit, there is biologic differences between the cancers, but breast cancer and prostate cancer are actually very similar biologically. And I wish that we had the same treatment modality or like the same kind of push of how can we increase the quality of life for these patients? Like, yes, we're saving their lives, but like, why aren't we then trying to improve the quality of their lives? It's oftentimes because we... We don't think of that additional step of like, but how are they actually living? What is their sexual health like? We don't think about that when it comes to women. It's it's very fascinating. There were numerous studies about post cancer treatment and the lack of care in terms of sexual health. So then let's get to the reality. Okay, so
1: women who are in menopause, and by the way, let's clarify: this is not just the 50-ish-year-old woman, this is also someone who's had a hysterectomy, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And what about patients who are undergoing certain cancer treatments? They may also, because I remember my mother, she had um, non small cell lung cancer. And I remember after she was done with her chemo, her period came back. And I just remember that being like a big celebration. And so I assume there's like a lot of reasons why a woman would be put into this state of of menopause. So mm-hmm. it's essentially any of these women, not just the ones who are hitting the 50-ish age, correct? That is who we're talking yeah. about. Okay.
0: Yeah. just want to make sure. Yep. Anything that can have any sort of effect on your hormone production mm-hmm. or effect on your ovaries or a- adrenal glands can cause GSM. Okay. Again, using that analogy of water to the garden. Um, Without the water, that garden cannot thrive. And so the water is hormones. And if you don't have the hormones on board for whatever reason, whether it's um, breast, actually breastfeeding women actually get GSM symptoms because when you go, when you breastfeed, it actually shuts down your ovulation and so you do not produce hormones like you normally would. Um, people getting treated for endometriosis were shutting down your ovarian production of hormones because we think that's considered. So a lot of people will actually develop GSM, um, and GSM is, again, the urinary symptoms and then also the, the sexual pain symptoms that can. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a very common thing. And the longer that you don't have hormones, the more progressive this, these changes are. Everyone who has this
1: loss of hormones needs to be proactive.
0: Yes. Yes. So that is my big push. So I'm a big believer in prevention instead of intervention. There are so many women I see that are 90 something years old and their vulvas are itchy, red, raw, crying, sobbing, and they're in their. Um, essentially, the opening is like almost sealed shut because no one did the same preventative care that we did for the rest of your body. Your mammograms, your your colonoscopies. Like, why are we not also prioritizing vulvar health? Because vulvar health is not just sex; it's actually urinary health too. And so many people die from bladder infections. It's actually killing people that we are not prioritizing vulvar health. Um, And we could, I say this to everyone, the vulva that you, I like my, not my, the vulva that you have pre-menopause should be the same vulva that you had on your deathbed. There's no reason that we should just accept that people's vulvas will just shrink and shrivel up. There's no reason. Like and yet we've widely accepted it. It's just, oh, it's a natural part of aging. Da da. da. It's not nat well, it's a natural part, but just because it's natural doesn't mean that it's acceptable. Okay. And so, and there's especially when there's a safe, safe a proven safe, low cost option to prevent all of these issues down the road. Like, I want to scream it from the mountaintops. Like every person that's 35 and up start looking at your vulva. I mean, anyone actually, look at your vulva, check your vulva, make sure that you are looking and understanding and looking for these silent changes because the symptoms happen much later before the actual physical changes start. And so once you start seeing these changes, things are just not looking like they should, go into your doctor, start advocating for yourself and being like, I wanna be on hormones. like, Cause you can, that's the other thing I like to tell people is that, or vaginal hormones, I like to tell my patients that they are their biggest advocate in the healthcare system. As a black woman in healthcare, and as I've had my own personal experiences with the healthcare system, as someone that is health literate and has like, you know, all of the connections, I still have been mistreated by the healthcare system. I can't imagine what people that don't have the same privileges that I do. And so I tell them, you are your biggest advocate. You can advocate for yourself. You know, there's like, your doctor knows something and they mean well, but a lot of them aren't staying up to date on the literature, aren't staying up to date on what you need or have their own unique biases or fears. Um, And you get to advocate for yourself. They don't always know everything and and not challenging them per se, but also just saying like, no, I, I also did my research and having discussions. I think the doctor-patient relationship should be more so a discussion of here's what the data shows and you get to make your own decision. Okay. I agree. Something also so interesting
1: is you guys mentioned this is not about going and getting a pap smear. This is going and getting your vulva examined by your doctor. But like, as you said, we're with our bodies every day. We should also be examining it because I would assume as a good patient, We go to our doctor and hopefully we'll say, hey, I've been inspecting my vulva and I'm noticing blah, 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 right? That's what we should be doing as a patient so that the doctor can then do something. So tell us about this this experience of how we, as the patient, can be more empowered, but then for the clinicians who are listening, what can clinicians do better by their patients in this whole dynamic?
0: Yes. Um, Clinicians, what we can be doing is taking a proactive stance to um, uh, vulvar health and vulvar care. Um, And like I said, I've mentioned several times, you cannot keep that garden healthy without hormones. So we should be in our clinics as urologists, we're seeing a ton of patients with recurrent UTIs. um, And that's one of the symptoms of GSM. And, And in our arsenal, we should also be saying, you have to take this medication. Like, there's no, um, I mean, you don't have to, but you—you you sh- these are the reasons why it's helpful. So a lot of people, will when I, what I think I've noticed is that a lot of people will get prescribed vaginal estrogen, but then won't take it because they don't know why. Like, it's just, it's because they're like, it's a mess, it's a whole thing, and, I'm, and I actually have then have to use either the analogy of the garden, or I use this other analogy, which I think is great, is, um, let me say that I was going to, like all you had to do every single day, like take a look at your leg. What if I told you that if you were to put lotion on it, you know, once uh, every day for two weeks and then just three times per week, um, it would then shrivel up, become super painful, red, raw, cracked and irritated. Would you put the lotion on or would you just let your leg shrivel up and get you know, infected and all these things? And yeah, maybe you're not a marathon runner, but would you let that happen? And they're like oh god no <laughs> and, and then i'm like that's what you're letting happen to your vulva right like and and that analogy actually makes sense to them because no one actually explained to them why they're doing anything and they're like yeah it's just a cream i don't know i mean there's so many times we haven't done our face routine you know just because we're like oh, whatever it's like the long list of things but if you actually understand like oh this is a health benefit i am preventing a lot of things I'm going to definitely take their 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 vaginal hormones, um, so that's one thing that providers can be doing is feeling under feeling comfortable prescribing it and then explaining to people why they're taking it and it, and, and understanding that. And then from a patient standpoint, is getting comfortable with their bodies. That is something that I have, was really surprised <laughs> by. Um, every time I examine someone, when, you know, I, when I examine my male patients, they're like, yep, whatever, just go for it. You know, obviously there's a little bit of that um, that interesting, unique difference because I'm a woman and they're a man, but, like, there's, but for the most part, there's really not, it's not uncomfortable. Versus when I examine every single woman, they say, I am so sorry, I apologize. I'm like, for what? We haven't even started. Like, what are you, every single patient I have has always apologized for their bodies. And that tells me that there is a social cultural shame that is happening around women's genitalia and, and vulvar genitalia, right? Like that is, that is so unique. No one would apologize if their elbow was broken or hurt or injured. You know, you don't apologize to your orthopedic surgeon about your, your hip or your knee, you know? It's, but when it comes to the doing a vulvar exam, so many people apologize so there's so much shame people have been told that their bodies are not good or you know that it's not a clean area or they should be disgusted by it they shouldn't they should actually look at it it's a body part it's an important body part and it's not just for sex you can also urinate and so so many people are like well i'm not having sex so i'm not going to take my estrogen And i'm like you have all the other organs down there too like your bladder and so that's that's a, a fascinating thing and so the other thing I, I tell people or the distinction between a, um, so as a, as a vulvar specialist, I do things very different than a, a gynecologist. Um, not super different, but I spend a lot more time on the external. Um, I don't do pap smears. That's not within my scope of practice. I spend all of my time on the external and because the, there's, there are way more structures externally than there are internally. There's just the, there's the vagina and then there's the cervix and the uterus, period. Versus there's the clitoris, the mons, the the mons pubis, the labia majora, the labia minora, the vestibule, you know, your pelvic floor muscles. These are all on the outside, and a lot of times these are completely disregarded um, in the standard gynecologic exam. Like, that's just how it's taught. They are not taught how to look at the external structures. Like, that's, that's one of my big pushes and research focuses is... How can we change how we teach anatomy, even, to medical students? Because medical students don't know this. Urology residents, gynecology residents, you go through your entire training without learning about how to examine the vulva. You learn how to put a speculum in, you learn how to look at the uterus and the cervix, that's about it. You don't actually learn about all the other structures, which is such a detriment and is a direct result as to why so many people are still dying of UTIs, getting GSM we need to be doing better from a medical standpoint of being proactive. And then also in under and explaining to our patients why they need these things. And then also from a patient standpoint of advocating for yourself, that looks like looking at my vulva. <laughs> that looks like getting comfortable with anatomy. Um, and yeah, that's, it's, it's a, it's a big, it's a big task and it's a big push, but I'm, I'm excited for that's it. That's awesome. The hormone you're talking about,
1: in this case, is vaginal estrogen.
0: Yes. so I, so i I um it's vaginal estrogen. Estrogen is very important for the the overall vulvar health. But I'm also so my research focus is the importance of, Testosterone as well. Um, there are many, numerous studies that have mapped out the re- testosterone receptors in the vulva itself. There's still more research that needs to be done as to what 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 is the full role of testosterone, and that's that's the research I'm obsessed with, uh, because there are a lot of pain conditions that are not actually an estrogen issue; they're a testosterone issue as well. And so, you know, that data still needs to be elicited or elucidated out, and that's like, I'm really excited for some upcoming data coming out. Um, But, so yes, mostly just vaginal estrogen. Um, There is a role for vaginal DHEA, which then is converted to estrogen and testosterone, um, but this is just where we're at, like in the landscape of, um, research and vulvar health is that we still have not fully mapped out the vulva. Like I just, we just came up with the nerves, like back in October, we're doing more work and more research to fully map this out. Cause it's all going to translate into clinical care. Wow. So, and the reason why I had asked about the,
1: um, the vaginal estrogen is I do remember also at the conference, you talking so much about testosterone and I wanted to make sure we're. <laughs> very clear and delineating, because I did want to also um, make sure we brought up some of the great points you made about testosterone. So a couple of things I wanted you to, to elaborate on is based on what we know today, what would the role of testosterone be? Number two, the precautions. So I remember some folks talking about hormone clinics. And as we know, Manhattan, nights, it, 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 Manhattan is the place where all the innovative, different ways of, of practicing tends to start right and uh, apparently there is lots of hormone clinics and there was a lot of precaution around that as well as the the hormone um pellets and so I, I wanted you to kind of expand on the the testosterone piece of this of the why and then the precautions
0: so when i'm thinking about when i when and also when i talk about um hormones i'm thinking again we're, we're focusing on the the vaginal yes. Hormones. Yes. Um, so, the in in terms of what i can tell you there is a medication called prasterone which is uh, vaginal dhea that is um, then converted to estrogen and testosterone within the the vaginal wall Um, and that's used as a treatment for dyspareunia or pain with sex Um, i think the big research question that i still want to answer is should everyone be on vaginal estrogen and testosterone? Because it is part of, again, it's part of your physiology and your anatomy. Like, let's replace what has been lost. And then who, because there are certain people that vaginal estrogen alone isn't enough. And there are certain people that vaginal estrogen alone is perfect. And there is actually a little nuance because you still do make a little bit of testosterone. And for some people, that's enough. And for some people, that isn't enough. and so. This is where, this is sorry, this is my brain. It's all constantly just t- thinking about research questions. You're, you're, um, I'm totally tracking because this is how my brain works too. So I, I'm right there with you. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, you do see these nuances of people just on estrogen and vaginal estrogen and they feel great. Everything's awesome, no pain, da da. And so, this, like, I love this work because there's so much research to be done. And I think instead of looking at it as, you know, the end-all be-all, like, it's just like, oh, that's another clinical question that we can answer. Um, But what we do have right now is vaginal estrogen and then vaginal DHEA. Um, In terms of systemic testosterone, That there are actually multiple guidelines that actually endorse the use of systemic testosterone um, in women that postmenopausal women with low libido. Okay. Um, So there are multiple guidelines. There's not really much controversy surrounding that. The controversy that is there is when we when we when we this is the other interesting thing is medicalizing and medical medicine and capitalism. (laughs) This is where it just goes to to shit because you know, it is kind of this, like, nuance, or it's like this, like, poo-pooed thing. Uh, You know, we've always thought about testosterone being a male's hormone, but it's actually an every-person hormone, and we know that people benefit from testosterone, um, postmenopausal people benefit from testosterone with low libido. The thing is, the FDA has not approved a formulation for testosterone for women, so there's actually not even a product that we can give to them that is based and dosed for them. So because of that, we then have to use um, male formulations of testosterone and you know a lot of, and we have to then like cut the dose and like do a lot of like really specific things for it. And that's what the guidelines recommend using the FDA approved options. Where the nuance and where the conversation and where the controversy comes in is the clinics and like practitioners that will say, Oh, we can compound it. We can do pellets. You know, we still don't know what that looks like. We don't. We just don't know the safety data for it. And so, I I understand why people are very up in arms about the pellets. I am a person that doesn't believe in doing pellets. Um, for every single person, like one of the things, like because one of the, the it's again the marketing so when people market pellets to you they're telling you this is going to change your entire life it's totally safe all of the things it's like it could be we don't know we don't have the research but there's also much cheaper options for you that are safer so why don't you do that instead and 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 when you don't let people have those options i think that's the issue yeah is that's where the snake oilsman type comes into play? Of this is the only thing you can use. This is the best. This is the sexiest. This is you're gonna feel amazing. Da da da. It's like, okay, whoa. Well, let's let's back up. What does the research say? What does the data say? It actually doesn't say any of those things. So you can't guarantee or promise that to patients. And you have to let them know this is the risk. Um, there is a higher risk. You're giving a big testosterone load, right? And so i I don't do pellets for people that are like starting testosterone. never do it. There are certain people that I will do a pellet for, but i it's it's controversial. I know it's well, you know all the things. But I do think this is where we can ask these nuanced questions of this is research. We can actually answer these research questions instead of this kind of like infighting, right, right? but you have to just be really truthful with patients and saying. This is what I can do. This is why I won't do. And this is why the pellet industry is a little snake oil than me. You know, like you you you're promising all of these things without data to support it, and then you're not giving them other options that are more cost effective or more beneficial to them. That's that's the issue. Okay. Is saying this is the only thing you can take, and you have to pay me cash. Like that's. That's where it gets confusing. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you
1: so much for explaining. So mm-hmm. one thing also we didn't cover, if I am a person who is not comfortable using hormone therapy, even down in the, the vulva area, um, what are the other options? Because I know, for example, there's vaginal moisturizer, and then there's a, t- a certain osmality that you need to look at, plus ingredients and things like
0: that. So what what else yeah. can folks consider? yes so i um again yes choice um and i do have these conversations with people of just saying okay i hear your i hear your fear i absolutely hear it this i mean in your fear although it's not supported by data i respect it and these there are options that are um that essentially treat the symptoms they don't reverse it that's the thing vaginal hormones completely cure the issue versus these medications don't cure it. It just helps you with the symptomatic issues. So they don't really solve the the, the um, issue of urinary tract infections and all of those things, but it helps with the dryness. So things like moisturizers can help with the dryness. There are also um, uh, selective estrogen receptor modulators um, for people that have had positive breast cancer. That is also an option for, for people. So, you know, these aren't this isn't the getting down to the root of the issue, but it, these are things that are potentially at least giving you, again, getting you to a quality of life that you feel comfortable with.
1: I guess, cause you, you talk about how women eventually get to you and obviously we want to give you as many patients as possible. Are all OBGYNs equipped? If you say, please inspect my vulva, should it be a NOMS OBGYN once we get to this age? Is that even sufficient? Like, what point do I come see someone
0: like yourself, a urologist who understands my body? And this is this is actually the thing that keeps me up at night. Um, is I'm a systems person, and if we look at the data, the access is just poor. It's 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 not good. You know, and I have to think about that as to why aren't people able to get, why is 50% of the population not getting optimal care? Like what is going on? And one big reason for this is the lack of education, the lack of formalized education on vulvar health. Um, Like I said, the field of gynecology and and OB-GYN, it actually used to be two specialties. So beforehand it was OB, like you had to do your full obstetrics residency and all of those things and then beforehand you you went you were a guy or you were a general surgeon and then you did a f- additional training in gynecology so two very different specialties they then combined them and didn't extend the training so <laughs> you now have two literally two different whole training programs and then just a short period of time you know a lot of the time vulvar health gets not taught well. Um, If we look at the medical student side of things, the residency side of things, even the fellowship side of things, you know, we're actually doing a a survey to look at this, actually specifically ask these questions. There have been surveys looking at this in the past in in a certain way. But yeah, the education piece is just not there. And that's, that's that's us, again, the medical community not doing the right thing for our patients and then so that i i sit with that because even after the let's talk menopause you know we're sitting in a room in new york city it's like you know people that have access and i like almost my heart kind of broke because we got you all riled up to like go and want the care that you deserve and i had to actually at the end be like i'm so sorry you might actually have a really hard time yeah, like exactly it, it, it's you're gonna actually have a really tough time, and it just like breaks my heart. And so, yeah, you know, the the best places to start are um, either NAMS trained specialist or sexual medicine specialist. Okay. So. Um, You know, I'm what I would call a sexual medicine specialist. I just came about it through the field of urology. But there are also sexual medicine specialists that are internal medicine, that are um, gynecology. So we have a specific focus in sexual medicine and overall sexual health, which happens to be bladder health and all these other, you know, good things. My ultimate vision is I want to shake things up in medicine to the point of forcing the American Medical Association, um, who is in charge of the curriculum for medical schools, to actually include vulvar anatomy in our training. And like, how, when we go to medical school, how do we do a vulvar exam? They they don't teach us this in medical school. We also don't really learn it in in residency even. And I had to take then specialized training. And so we're literally ignoring a whole body part. Um, and that and we're being trained to do that. And that's that's a that's an issue. I will not stop screaming this because it wasn't until my fellowship when I learned how to do an actual vulvar exam. I went through medical school, I went through a really great urology training program where we treated women and prolapse and all of these things and we're in the vulva. And I still didn't learn how to do an exam that actually examined the entire vulva and you know i work with gynecology residents and fellows and they still don't know either and it's like there's an issue and it's coming from the call is coming from the inside the house it's us as doctors and the only reason i get to stand on the soapbox is because i get to treat men and i get to see what their quality of life is and i love that and i want that exact thing for my female patients too i just want everyone to have access yes that's really it um, access and ease, and instead of medical gaslighting and suffering. Wow.
1: I never realized just how truly unique of a position you're in. Um, it is true, like you seeing the men and the women. And, and even in the conference, you all said, really, the clitoris and the penis are the same thing. We're just not looking at things properly. And so I just, it's just even more clear what a unique position you're in. So I really appreciate you making time. So takeaways
0: for clinicians and for the women struggling. Vaginal hormones are vital. They are life saving. They are quality of life giving. Um, they are safe, they are effective. We need to be doing better and more proactive. Um, on the patient side of assessing your vulvar and taking ownership of your vulvar health, and then on the physician side of educating ourselves, feeling comfortable, um, and being proactive in prevention instead of, you know, us getting into this trap of, oh, now this patient has recurrent UTIs, and now we don't know what to do. It's like, well, we could have prevented all of this if we were doing our jobs correctly. Okay. Thank you. Wow. Truly, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for this platform. This is actually how people um, learn, right? And I, as a researcher, I'm really big into science communication. Like I can write all of these papers. I can do all these things that I think is moving the needle forward. But if my patients don't know or the people don't know that they can have access to these things, what's the point? So speaking truth to power and like actually doing these things really matters. So thank you so much for this platform. Thank you.